In today's world, finding the facts and applying the truth to solve complicated problems is a bold move. Become an actuary and use your math skills to bring predictability to uncertainty. Actuaries are respected professionals and truth-tellers valued across the globe. And actuaries are the U.S. News number 22 top-paying career. Explore a great career in a field you love, making a real difference for real people. Find your path. The world needs actuaries more than ever. Um, St. Cooler was a beautiful child growing, um, growing up. Um, as me as me being her father, you know, on the weekends, she was always like to be with me, you know. And when I leave and go to work, she would cry, you know. Uh, she was a daddy girl. She was very loving, very caring. She knew the Lord. She went to church. I was about to chill, man, because... Shanquilla Robinson was 25 years old when she boarded a plane bound for Cabo, Mexico on October 28, 2022. And sadly, only one day after arriving in Cabo, Shanquilla was pronounced dead. And she called me and told me um, she had passed. I just started crying. I just hollered. And he said, Mr. Robinson, a statement and what the autopsies um, re- review, it didn't add up. Impact of Influence, the Shanquello Robinson story, and our quest to find the truth and find justice for Shanquello. Hello, friend. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker here. And with the Shanquello Robinson talk, one of the big questions has been about extradition. And so we've decided to bring on a couple of experts in the field. But of course, first, uh, if you want to reach out, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com, or you can still go to our Facebook, which is Murdoch Podcast. And our experts in extradition, Duncan B. Hollis is a professor of law at Temple Law School and co faculty director of Temple's Institute for Law, Innovation, and Technology. His scholarship engages with issues of international law, interpretation, and cybersecurity, with particular emphasis on treaties, norms, and other forms of international regulation. He's written a few books, including the Oxford Guide to Treaties and many other papers and books on extradition. So important to point out, Professor Hollis worked for the State Department when he graduated Boston College Law School, and this is important for our conversation here Professor Hollis' practices included international litigation for the International Court of Justice. He served as counsel to the U.S. in the provisional measures phase of the case concerning Avina and other Mexican nationals, Mexico v. U.S., and contributed to the U.S. presentation in the oil platforms case with the State Department, as well as Seton. Yes, my dad. I'd really like to introduce my dad, Matt Zambita. He is a graduate of Penn Law School, and he served as a clerk for the Third Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. With over 30 years of litigation experience, he practices with a large law firm that handles civil and criminal cases domestically and internationally, including Europe, Canada, and Mexico. He has also personally been involved in extradition cases, so I thought it would be the perfect time to bring him on. And he also serves as an adjunct professor at the Temple Law School. Okay, so this case that we've been following has taken us to all about what is extradition, how are the treaties, and that sort of thing. And you two are 
experts in this field. Let's start with uh, Duncan. Just the idea of extradition. How does it work in general? And I know it would change by country, but what's the general concept? So the the general idea is this surrender of an accused or convicted person who is uh, outside of the country where the conviction or the prosecution is to take place. And, you know, so it is, you know, by a state that a requesting state that asks for them to be to return to the state to face the prosecution or or fulfill whatever sentence has been imposed against the state where that person happens to be located. It actually is only a practice that is a little more than a century old. It was not the sort of thing that was regularized in, say, the 19th century. It only began kind of in the 20th century to become a more regularized practice. Before that time, it was really up to the to the sovereign, say the monarch in Europe to decide whether they would send someone uh, or not. Um, but it's been legalized over the last century through uh, a largely bilateral set of what we call extradition treaties, where two states kind of agree in advance uh, that if they want to make a request for extradition or they receive a request for extradition, how they'll handle it. Well, let's talk a little bit specifically about the treaty that United States has with Mexico. How, how did that come about and how does it work? You know, not surprisingly, right, the U.S. and Mexico uh, sharing the the long border that they do have a real need for an extradition treaty because it tends to be when somebody commits a crime in one jurisdiction, they may flee to the other or there are crimes that might be committed, you know, white collar crimes might be committed in one territory uh, that have effects in the other. So the U.S. has longstanding extradition relationships with Mexico the particular U.S.-Mexico extradition treaty that we've had now has been in place for almost five decades, although subject to some amendments. And basically, it's, you know, basic thrust is you can be extradited from one state to the other so long as the crime of which you're accused or have been convicted would be um, punishable by more than, you know, one year in the state from which the extradition is requested. There's a unfortunate you know, set of kind of political history where the relationship has been fraught from time to time between the U.S. and Mexico over, you know, a series of cases. And uh, the treaty itself has been the subject of multiple Supreme Court cases over the years, uh, although I'm not sure that will be implicated in the case you all are investigating. Matt, you know of a couple of cases that involved extradition with Mexico. Do you want to give us an idea or an example Sure. I'll give you a, a couple of very quick ones. Um, the one that's uh, probably been most cited recently is uh, one involving a gentleman by the name of Victor Ernest Child, who apparently had a house someplace in Mexico um, and shot his wife twice in the head down there and then went back to the U.S. Uh, the U.S. started a uh, Mexico started a extradition proceeding to get him extradited back. And we can talk about the process at a certain point here. And the uh, courts in California, federal court in California, found that there was what they call probable cause to uh, ship him back to Mexico. He took an appeal in that case on the basis that he was not giving warnings uh, about a right to an attorney and other things that you've heard a lot here in the U.S. The uh, Court of Appeals uh, in the Ninth Circuit out in California uh, said that, uh, well, too bad, uh, murder happened in Mexico, and they don't have the same sort of warnings and rights down there. We have an extradition treaty, so you're getting extradited. That entire process took probably 
six, seven years for him to get extradited down there. He was extradited down there around 2015 or so. Um, I think he was tried, uh, was convicted, and uh, we can talk a little bit about the law, but he basically was given a seven and a half year jail sentence uh, is what it turned out to be. The other two quickly were um, uh, was were involved by a guy by the name of Eddie Cruz, who apparently uh, killed uh, another gentleman down in a bar fight in Tijuana, and the U.S. extradited him down there to face murder charges. Third one involved a, a U.S. citizen who was involved in a murder robbery of another U.S. citizen, and he similarly was extradited there. Uh, most of the extradition cases you see seem to be coming out of California, I guess because of the border with Tijuana and other things there. I haven't seen that many out of Texas. It seems like the jail sentence in the case that you mentioned is much shorter than you would receive in the United States. Is that typical in Mexican courts? Yeah, the way it works there is, and I'll just give you just a minute or two on the background of Mexican law. Um, Mexican law basically was originally founded not on our theories, as you saw, for example, in the Murdoch case. It was founded on French law and Roman law and Spanish law originally. Uh, it was recently changed, so it's a little bit more adversarial. They, in the mid-2005, uh, 2006, did away with the death penalty in Mexico, and they always believed that people can be rehabilitated there. So the longest sentence you can get for murder is 50 years, um, and then you're up for parole at that particular point. Uh, there are various levels of homicide there. So, for example, if you get involved uh, in a bar fight or something that happens spontaneously, uh, it's considered to be less serious than, it, than if it was thought through or premeditated in some way. So as a result of that, the sentences for these other charges are somewhat less. When I say less, like 10 years with the opportunity to get parole in five or six years. But uh, straight out murder, homicide can be longer. Let's talk about that. Let's go to the process then. So Mexico, let's say the, the crime happens in Mexico. Mexico reaches out to which organization here, Department of Justice or something? And then, and then what happens next? They send the request basically to the State Department, and there are two ways that it proceeds. There's a judicial process and an executive process in terms of the way it proceeds here. It, when it gets to the judicial process, basically, the U.S. Marshal's Office is responsible for carrying out the coordination through the entire length of how long, how long it takes. What happens is, is that uh, the Department of Justice will basically send the matter to the local uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. So here, for Ms. Robinson, I believe it was sent to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of North Carolina. Uh, and then the FBI will conduct uh, an investigation to decide if there is basically probable cause for the person to be arrested to be brought before court and to start the extradition proceedings there. Uh, if they decide that that happens, there obviously can be some appeal rights. Once those are exhausted, it then goes to the executive branch through the Secretary of State's office, and that they then decide whether or not they're going to extradite. And what they take into account are the relationships between the countries at that particular moment, humanitarian issues, and other things like that. In this particular case, um, I think that what you're seeing is it's broken down uh, during the 
investigative stage by the FBI in that what took place was that there was uh, a autopsy that was done down in Mexico uh, that resulted in a homicide charge being brought and extradition requests being made. Apparently, when the autopsy was done up here, they didn't find the same level of injury to the person who was killed. And as a result, they thought it was much more inconclusive. And they concluded that there was not enough probable cause for them to start the proceeding for there to be extradition. Uh, And so therefore, it's probably important that what you guys have been covering in terms of the family effort to get the body exhumed and to do a new autopsy and to recover more evidence is is important. If I can, if I can just jump in, I think. Yeah, so I think a couple of things. One is, is it is, you know, that you have these extradition treaties, and it, and the requirement is not that you have the exact same crimes, right? Um, you have to have kind of similar crimes with a similar level of severity, right? So you can't get extradited for misdemeanor, for example, and the like. But that, as as Matt elaborates, right, you have the extradition treaty, and then there's a federal statute that implements all extradition treaties. So it applies to all of them. And the bottom line is, independent of what the treaty might require of the United States, the statute requires that the extradition can only take place if the evidence that's being presented, in this case by Mexico, would be sufficient to commit the person for trial if the crime had been committed in the U.S. So that's how you have the Justice Department you know, normally they'd go to a, go to a judge and say, and there'd be a hearing, and it would be the judge that makes the determination. Yes, I think you have sufficient evidence here that if this was a U.S. case, we'd allow for the indictment or we'd allow the prosecution to proceed. Here, we didn't even get to that judicial hearing, right? We we have the Justice Department saying we don't think we have enough evidence to even go for the hearing, and so we haven't even gotten past that stage. And beyond that, lurks the Secretary of State, who would have some discretion on whether, you know, extradition is warranted or not consistent with the treaty. And here you go to take it in front of a grand jury and they decide on whether an indictment. So that's a, like a similar type thing. They have to find out if they have enough. Yeah, here it's just a judge. Just it's a judge. just okay. a judge here. You don't need, you don't, it, but it's a judge who has experience with grand juries and has experience with the level of evidence that would be required to swear out a warrant for arrest or or other things in the in the U.S. and so they're kind of saying, have are the Mexicans presenting me with something that if this wasn't Mexico but San Diego law enforcement, we'd go ahead. And I think that's where you're seeing this case has gotten gotten kind of off the rails, so to speak. And that that's the the Justice Department says they're not they're not there. And so I think it's you know we're not even at a point where the Secretary of State can weigh in and and push this forward because you need under the U.S. statute. You need the court to sign off before it can go to that executive stage where other things are taken into account. I mean, the one other thing I'd notice is that some countries have a tradition of not extraditing their nationals, right? That like they're only there to say, oh, you know, if a Mexican person committed a crime and fled to the U.S., we'll return them to Mexico to face justice. The U.S. tradition is not that. The U.S. is willing, as Matt's cases highlight, um, it will rec- it will extradite U.S. nationals back to another country yeah. if the U.S. finds through this process that, that there's sufficient evidence to at least have the trial to see if they violated that other country's law. What is the next step for the family, or or are there more steps that the family can take to find justice for their daughter? Yeah, I, I think the next steps are for the family to press to see if they can come up with additional evidence that'll convince the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI to take it to the judge for that hearing that Duncan was talking about. So, for example, um, if some witnesses come forward and say that they witnessed uh, a violent murder of Ms. Robinson, that that might 
be very well be enough. Second of all, if the autopsy is apparent autopsy, that there was broken neck and other foul play, that that then could result in enough evidence to take it to to take it to the uh, judge to to find probable cause and to order an extradition. Yeah, it's as it, Duncan said, it's a process question. You need more evidence. My process question is to back up a little bit. So the judge signs off and says there's enough evidence that this person committed the murder in Mexico. Does that American citizen go to some sort of a trial here first, or is it just the judge signs off and they ship them out? What happens is the judge signs off. They may have some appellate rights, uh, appellate rights uh, where they could appeal it, saying there was not enough probable cause or the other issues that should foreclose it. Once that's done, it then goes to the executive branch and the secretary of state makes the ultimate decision. Yeah, so I, I'd weigh in, actually, um, I think, right, so the, the Secretary of State makes the ultimate decision in light of what the U.S. is obligated by the treaty. The actual, the sufficiency of the evidence hearing, which is often going to be by a magistrate judge, so not even like a full judge, that usually is not actually going to be appealable. There might be particular reasons, as Matt suggests, that it would be appealable, but as a general matter, uh, you're not able to resist extradition uh, on the grounds that there wasn't sufficient evidence, because again, this is not you being convicted of anything. This right. is just a question of, is there enough evidence to return you, say, to Mexico to face a trial in which you would have gotcha. all the due process protections that Mexican law affords? And if this was a country where the U.S., for example, doesn't think that there's sufficient protections or thinks the protections are changing, that's where the secretary of state could say, you know what, although in the past we would extradite people to Mexico, we're not going to do so. So just to switch gears a little bit, you know, over uh, in the last several years, China re uh, passed the national security law that targets Hong Kong and changed its criminal justice system quite dramatically. And the U.S. had an extradition treaty with Hong Kong where it would extradite criminals at the Hong Kong government, the local government's request. But in light of those changes, the Secretary of State has kind of said, we're going to suspend any further extraditions because we don't think anybody who's sent there will get the due process protections we expect of a democratic constitutional government. Um, you know, I think that's not to say it has to be equivalent. Mexico's due process is different than the U.S., but the U.S. has some confidence that there's due process protections. And so that's why you get a shot to kind of to stop it in the U.S. at the judicial level and then a shot at, with the secretary of state. But again, the question is whether you can be sent back to just face trial. It's not you're not convicted yet. Okay. Yeah, and the, the other thing, the other thing I could just add to that is that there is some brewing tension as we speak between Mexico and the U.S. So, although I think that probably if it went all the way up to the secretary's office, they would extradite. It's not a sure thing. There's a there's been a uh, some elections coming off. There's some issues around that. There's all the border issues. There was another murder down in Matamoros that has caused a lot of tension between the U.S. and Mexico and some um, uh, and some uh, repercussions back and forth. So it's, it's not 100 percent clear, but most likely they would. Do we take into consideration with these extradition treaties the conditions of the jails in different countries? The way it's taken into account really is, is there is a treaty between the U.S. and Mexico where if it convicted in Mexico, if both parties agree the person can serve out their sentence in the U.S., but Duncan can better explain it than I can. That does get taken into account both at the at the negotiation stage, right? So you might put in particular protections 
So some countries, for example, not on conditions in the jail, but what kind of charges. So some countries will say, we will not be obligated to extradite by anybody who would face the death penalty, for example. Um, it's also an active consideration. These extradition treaties are negotiated by the State Department and the, the executive branch, but they need the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate, two-thirds of the senators. So you have to get 66 senators on board. And certainly in the Senate hearings on whether to, to uh, give advice and consent to the treaty, the conditions of the law enforcement, uh, detention conditions, and all of that can be part of the equation on whether there's a thumb up or thumb down. Once the treaty's been concluded, it becomes the supreme law of the land, right? It's the equivalent of a, you know, a federal statute, particularly given that you have other federal statutes that implement it. And so in those cases, it, it's not going to be um, something that will preclude your extradition or the like. I will note, as Matt noted, there are opportunities where if it's an American citizen whose family or others are here, there's a separate uh, prisoner transfer treaty, which allows... Mexican nationals serving uh, sentences in the U.S. to be transferred back to Mexican prisons to finish out their sentence and vice versa, where an American could, under a variety of conditions, this is a separate treaty from the extradition treaty, but there's a separate treaty that would allow somebody who gets convicted and sentenced to a number of years to serve out in Mexico could be, at the request of the U.S. government, brought back to serve their um, sentence in the U.S. It happened on Ozark, so I know it's uh, real. The the <laughs> There's a difference in U.S. and Mexican law, right? The guilty uh, until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty. Explain that. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, as I said, uh, there is no death penalty, but also you're assumed guilty. So you have to prove your innocence much different than what it is here in the U.S., there is no jury, so it's only decided by a judge. In order to be convicted for the highest level of homicide, you have to basically show that it was premeditated and that it was planned out in some way. So that if it was, for example, a bar fight, uh, that would result in a lesser charge of homicide under Mexican law. I think the other thing to remember here, right, is that most criminal laws are territorial based, right? So you commit murder in U.S. territory in the state of North Carolina or Puerto Rico, then, you know, both federal and or state law can apply. But you commit murder in Okinawa, Japan, you haven't necessarily violated any federal laws. And that's the same true for somebody from Mexico who commits a crime in Philadelphia isn't necessarily going to be criminal. So it's a little bit also of an all or nothing proposition in the absence of another state with jurisdiction, right? Mexico may be the only state that makes this matter criminal. Now, there are exceptions for things like terrorism and certain, you know, taxation and the like, where states have extended their criminal law in an, what we might call extraterritorial way, right? Like reaching beyond the borders. But when it comes to most things, even as violent crimes like murder, if there's going to be justice here, the justice will be under Mexican law because this is not going to have violated, as a general matter, the laws of North Carolina or federal law unless there's some connection to organized crime or terrorism or, or the like, which, you know, Congress has said, those we will reach beyond our borders. Yeah, and, and, and just, just to add briefly onto that, Seton, that if you are extradited to Mexico to stand trial, a couple other things you ought to know. First of all, they have a shortage of judges. Uh, so you're going to be, yeah, so you're assumed guilty, you're going to be in jail, and you're going to have to wait a long time to even get to trial. No such thing as a speedy trial in uh, Mexico, right? I know when we spoke, when we were talking before, we mentioned, and not suggesting that this would happen in this case, about sometimes these abductions 
happen. Can y'all give us an example of one of those? Again, not suggesting that this would happen in this case. Right. So let's let's be clear that there's the law and there's the politics um, and the politics of like Mexican officials trying to uh, send bounty hunters over the border to to grab a person um, would likely severely rupture the relationship. But like I have to say, as I mentioned before, there are there have been a number of Supreme Court cases where this happened the other way, where um, there's actually a famous case of the United States versus Alvarez Machine, and, and Dr. Alvarez Machine was a Mexican doctor who was accused of participating in the, the torture and execution of an undercover DEA agent, drug enforcement agent who'd been discovered, and he was accused of helping the, the Mexican cartel keep, keep this guy alive where they could get whatever information out of him uh, and then facilitating his death. And Dr. Alvarez Machine was accused. He was a Mexican national. The U.S. asked for his extradition. Mexico, it, the treaty does not obligate the U.S. To, to return Americans to Mexico or Mexico to return Mexicans to the U.S. Um, and so Mexico declined. And the U.S. solution was to put out a, a $3 million plus bounty on the head. And the very law enforcement officers that they'd asked for the extradition formally ended up off duty um, literally, you know, putting a bag over Alvarez Machine's head, putting him in the back of a van, and driving him across the border, where he was left in front of a, a you know a federal courthouse. Mm. Um, and and Alvarez Machine says this is you know this is inconsistent with the extradition treaty. I want uh, I want to be returned, uh, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court actually says, well, the extradition treaty doesn't prohibit abductions. It is a way for a defendant to make their way before the U.S. <laughs> judicial system. It's not the only way. And so um, we're not going to find any individual relief for this defendant, even as the Supreme Court says we might have the U.S. might have violated international law. They might have violated Mexican sovereignty by doing this. But that's not that's not going to grant this defendant uh, uh, relief from the trial. Now, ironically, Alvarez Machine's trial is later thrown out for lack of sufficient evidence. So a federal judge says there's not enough to actually try him on it. But we had years of litigation that led to a real break in the U.S.-Mexican relationship where Mexico threatened to stop all extraditions. The U.S. and Mexico for a time discussed amending the extradition treaty to prohibit abductions. And the U.S. had to kind of kind of publicly come out and say, you know, it is not the U.S. government policy to use abductions to get Mexican nationals before the U.S. judicial system. Although that was all before 9-11. And as we've seen in the, you know, war on terror phase, this remains on occasion a way the U.S. will anticipate bringing terrorists to justice based on these Supreme Court precedents. You don't have to be extradited in the U.S. Uh, to face trial in the U.S. You can get here by by other means. Um, but that's always lurking in the background, I think, of the U.S.-Mexico extradition treaty relationship is the, the memories long in Mexico that the U.S. was willing to circumnavigate the extradition treaty in at least you know a, a couple of instances. And um, that's been a source of tension. I think that's a documentary. I think there's a documentary about that doctor. Yes. Like it's called The Last Narco or something like that. And very, very interesting. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. You know, I'm just going to add just very briefly that in terms of other ways to uh, get somebody transferred from one country to another, um, Mexico, if you recall, transferred El Chapo uh, to New York, and he was tried on all sorts of crimes that he committed there and sentenced basically to life in a very high security prison. Um, and I'm sure that arrangements were made since uh, the Mexicans are not in favor of the death penalty, that he would not be sentenced to death uh, as part of the deal they made with the U.S. to ship him up to uh, New York City for his trial. 
So there are other ways countries do cooperate in other agreements that they do make. The U.S. was probably not happy that El Chapo just kept escaping every six months from whatever Mexican prison he was in, if I remember correctly. <laughs> They're finally like, you know, enough tunnels, guys. So that, that just uh, really interesting. I think we hit everything. Did we miss anything? Yeah, the only other thing I'd add is just uh, the, the death penalty point is one worth iterating. That's been another source of tension. Um, Mexico actually took the United States to the World Court, the International Court of Justice, which is established under the UN Charter, um, because there were 54 Mexican nationals on death row across the U.S., when they were arrested, you know, they weren't told that they could talk to the Mexican consulate. The international court actually suggested the U.S. shouldn't extradite these people without, you know, um, uh, a new hearing. Oklahoma actually stayed an execution and commuted a sentence as a result of that world court hearing. Texas did not and ended up before the Supreme Court getting the green light again to allow its execution to go forward, notwithstanding the, uh, you know, that world court judgment. I, you know, I say that to say from the Mexican perspective, as much as people might question what are the conditions in the Mexican jails, from the Mexican perspective, they view the U.S. practice uh, of pursuing the death penalty and even life imprisonment as human rights violations and, and egregious punishments uh, and the like. And so there is some disconnect here between how these countries think about criminal justice and, and remedial and other responses. Well, I think we actually have some problems with the conditions in our jails as well. Just I think last week in Georgia, there was an inmate who was suffering from some sort of mental health issue who... Bed bugs killed him killed or something. Him. I mean, it it's was crazy. it's really crazy. But so, I, could, I mean, we have some issues in our own jails as well. I got a death penalty question. Does the U.S. extradite to countries that have the death penalty? Because I know it's the other way around. Some people won't send them here because we have the death penalty. But we are we willing to send extradite people to countries that have the death penalty? I don't even if you know that. I don't know the answer. I don't think. It, again, that may depend on the particular administration in place in the Secretary of State. Right? We've had particular presidential administrations that are more or less inclined or against uh, the imposition of the death penalty at a federal level. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Our legal system is such that the for crimes within a state, it's up to the state to decide whether the death penalty is, is appropriate or not under the state constitution. You could imagine certain situations where there might be a death penalty being imposed by a certain country that the U.S. would say, no, we don't think that the that's going to this person's going to get a fair hearing. But I don't know that there's anything per se that would restrict it unless there's something in the in the treaty. But I don't think the U.S. actually includes. For its part, it doesn't negotiate to have any death penalty exclusions in its extradition treaty. I, I don't think so. And in fact, there was a famous case coming the other way involving someone in Philadelphia, a uh, professor at the University of Pennsylvania by the name of Epstein. Uh, uh, this is a very famous case that goes way back to the 1970s. Uh, apparently killed his girlfriend and left her in a trunk in a closet until they discovered his bo her body. Uh, he was very well known in Philadelphia, and the then Senator Specter apparently represented him before he became se uh, senator and got him released on bail and he ran away. Uh, and he ran to initially Ireland and then over to Europe, ultimately marrying some uh, French woman who had some wealth and they lived in some chateau in the south of France. He was ultimately uh, arrested in the south of France. Uh, under some agreement that the U.S. made, where if they shipped them back, they wouldn't put them to death. Mm -hmm. And so it was ultimately shipped back to Philadelphia, tried and convicted, and died in prison several years ago. Yeah. The, the last thing I mentioned is that there is, a, there is a rule that goes both ways. 
it's forgive the phrasing, it's called the rule of speciality. And that's that's the case that you can only be charged for the tri- for the crime or crimes for which you're ex- extradited. So you can't say, hey, you were uh, reckless driving or DUI, and we want you extradited for driving under the influence if it rose to the level of a felony and could be punishable by more than a year. Um, and then bring the person in and say, actually, we're going after you for manslaughter oh. or homicide one or something like that. Gotcha. And so there is this idea that Mexico can't undercharge and then flip it. So like Mexico will be obligated if the person, you know, if the accused is extradited to Mexico, they're limited in what the the actual then trial can hear and vice versa. So there is that as a as a as something to Makes account sense. for and and but so it's it's a it's an important caveat that's that both sides uh recognize in the extradition relationship. In this case the US is saying there's not enough evidence to pursue murder charges, but we've seen the video we know that there was an assault that occurred. Is it possible that they could file new charges for assault? Yeah, they would. They both. It'd have to be the sort of crime that would be punishable by more than a year's uh, sentence in both Mexico and the U.S. So, if you could come up with an alternative but maybe lesser charge, you could. Yes, you could. You could go that route. With the caveat, though, that then you could not get the person extradited to Mexico City and then turn around and say, aha, we're actually, we tricked you. We're now going to charge you with gotcha. murder. Can't so, sandbag you know, there is You cannot sandbag them, right? And, and that will, you know, and that's part of the political calculus of what extradition requests you make is you're balancing the need for justice, the interests of the victims, the interest of the country in which the crime occurred. You don't want to under-criminalize or under-enforce the law, but you also don't want to overreach. Each, um, because you could end up in a situation where the U.S., as it did in this case, says we don't think there's a sufficiency of evidence to support the the charge. You guys have been great. Really appreciate it, Matt. Uh, I'd like to know the other Matt in Seton's life that we're here together. I'll keep an eye on her for you. Yeah, well, I guess I'll see you guys in court TV at the next arraignment of somebody like the Murdoch arraignment. That's all Matt. That is all Matt Harris, no, not Seton Tucker. Uh, Duncan and Matt, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. See you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we had a comment from a listener. We had a listener comment on our last episode about the time difference from Charlotte to Cabo. So, you know, we said it was very early in the morning that they were going swimming. Right. But there's a three hour time difference. So it maybe wasn't quite as early for them. And their body clocks. Yes. They might have been up moving around. And I'm still really intrigued by what may have happened between 10 a.m. or so when the, I was going to say fight, but I hate saying a fight because it's one, you know, fight implies that two people are fighting. The beating that Cinquella was taking till two o'clock when they called the doctor, it looks like in in the video for beating that she's not going to start drinking anytime soon because she's just beaten down. And so does she start drinking? Is there another incident we don't know about? That happens between 10 and 2. And what about the the marks on her body that uh, Dr. Michelle talked about? I've had a lot of people ask me personally about that, the marks on her body. And that there are so many unanswered questions about that time period, what happened. Yeah, this, they were, she said, scratches, but intentional from some sort of metal rod yeah. on her body. So I, 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 there are questions. And... Your thoughts are always welcome, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com or the Facebook 
Murdoch Podcast. We're always grateful you spend time with us, and we'll talk soon. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com